0: All right. Well, let me start asking questions. <laughs> Paul argues that a denial of the bodily resurrection of believers implies that Christ himself was not resurrected. True, he does. Because in verse 12, remember he doesn't say that they they uh, denied the resurrection of Christ, but he will say, if you say there's no bodily resurrection, there's no possibility of a bodily resurrection, which you're saying, there's no possibility of a bodily resurrection, then how can you say Christ was raised in a body? You're, you're kind of working backward there to say that's a problem, as we'll see. Uh, two, one may deny the bodily resurrection of Christ and still be a genuine believer. False. Now this is like a lot of, this question comes up a lot with various doctrines. What do you have to believe to be saved? And so forth. And so, uh, when we give the person the gospel, we want to give them a full presentation as we can. But we don't sometimes tell them everything. For instance, can you deny the virgin birth and be saved? way you just stated that. No. No. <laughs> no. So the truth is, you may come to, somebody may come to Christ, they may hear about his, his atonement for their sins. He died on the cross, he was raised.
1: They may, they may
0: they may not hear anything about his virgin birth. So they may you can be saved without knowing about the virgin birth. But the point is, once you're saved and you read in scripture and you're taught that he was born of a virgin, as a Christian, you won't deny it. A true believer will not deny whatever the Bible teaches. Whatever the Bible teaches, we accept. And we may have difficulty, you know, understanding everything. But if something is clearly taught, one of the effects of regeneration of being born again is that we accept what... So people who knowingly and adamantly deny the virgin birth, we would say, no, you're not a genuine Christian if you clearly understand what we're saying. You deny what Scripture says about the virgin birth. Uh, that kind of thing. So, so a a genuine believer is not going to deny the resurrection. They're not going to deny the virgin birth and so forth. They may come to Christ with limited knowledge about a number of various issues and so forth. They may not understand all about the Bible and various doctrines. You learn as you come along, and we come with a kind of a willing acceptance. Um. Paul is the rightful heir to Judas's apostleship. I said no, false, because remember, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 there says he was seen of 500, he was seen the 12, you know, so he distinguishes himself from the 12. He was seen by the 12, and then he was seen by me. So I think the, the 12 are related more to Israel and their, the relationship of. Israel and so forth, and Paul as the apostle of the Gentiles. The death of Christ was a penal substitution. True. It was a substitute. He substituted for Bill Combs, but he also paid the penalty for Bill Combs' sins. So he paid the penalty for my sins. So therefore, God will never bring up Bill Combs' sins again in heaven. He won't say, Bill You're going to have to go to purgatory for a while. So you can see where purgatory by the Roman Catholics is sort of kind of a... doesn't really understand the substitutionary death correctly, does it? Because the substitutionary death of Christ pays for all of our sins. God punished him. God's wrath was upon him. He's the propitiation. He's the appeasement for God's wrath. Cephas is the Aramaic name of Paul false, that's a little tricky, it was Peter. Peter is his Greek name, Petros. but he had an Aramaic name because the Greeks, so the, the Jews spoke Hebrew or a related language, Aramaic. Aramaic and Hebrew are very close together, so they probably spoke Aramaic more, at least as a common tongue in Judea and so forth, Galilee, uh, some Hebrew, but Cephas is the Aramaic name of Peter. Well, we're looking at the resurrection of Christ in verses chapter 15, verses 1 through 28. Paul has spent the first part of the chapter explaining uh, about the resurrection of Christ, about his death and resurrection, and saying, this is what you believe. This is what we preached. We, the apostles, preached that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture he was raised the third day he was seen by the 12 by 500 by numerous people he then last of all he was seen by me on that road to Damascus and I was appointed an apostle and so forth he was preached by all the apostles and was believed by the Corinthians verse 11 and then verses 12-19, through 19, Christ's resurrection is fundamental to salvation and all else that relates to Christianity. So he got to the heart of the problem, You remember, in verse 12, when he said there, um, but if Christ, but if it's preached that Christ has, excuse me, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Um, so if Christ has been raised from the dead, then obviously, how can you say there's no resurrection? There must be a resurrection. And verse 11, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So the two tie together. The two go together. And verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's because that resurrection is a demonstration that God was satisfied with that substitute substitution. That that penal substitution of Christ was sufficient. And Christ finished on the cross that work and he didn't remain in the grave. If he remained in the grave, we wouldn't know. Well, was it, did it work or not work? Was it good? No, he was raised, as Paul says in Romans 4.25, raised for our justification. So the uh, ex- the uh, resurrection confirms that our justification our, declare- our, our salvation has been secured. So there is this very fundamental link between uh, the resurrection and all of our salvation the Christian faith. Without the resurrection there's no Christian faith. Without the resurrection there's no clear, there's no evidence there's, there, we, we, there, there's, Christ's death was not sufficient without that resurrection so there's no real Christian faith so we come to verse 20 um, Christ's resurrection is the pledge and pattern of the believer's resurrection I say here Paul has finished for now laying out the consequences of Christ not being raised from the dead and those consequences are eternal. There's no salvation. There's no Christian faith. Now he turns to affirm the truth of Christ's resurrection and the results thereof. But Christ has been, has indeed been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. And the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But, of course, the truth of the matter is, and what the Corinthians themselves profess to believe, is that a resurrection from the dead has already taken place. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And as a result, those who have fallen asleep in Christ will not perish but are destined for resurrection since Christ is the first fruits of those who will be raised. So, the resurrection of Christ inherently has within it that which makes the resurrection of dead believers inevitable he was raised those that are in Christ will inevitably be, be raised also of course first fruits i say here is an illustration from the old testament where the first fruits of a harvest serves as a guarantee for the full harvest the first fruits metaphor is very similar to a To Paul's metaphor of the deposit. Remember, Paul makes a big use of this deposit metaphor. The King James calls the earnest, remember. God appointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. For what reason? To guarantee what is to come. Remember, we have been saved, we are being saved, but we will be saved, because we're going to get that glorified body. So the spirit we have now is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. When you believe you are made, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the redemption of the body. So it's very similar when you talk about the first fruits. It's a down payment. Uh, of what is to come we also see the first fruits metaphor used of the Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and of the house of Stephanus therefore we are always to thank God for you brothers and sisters loved by God because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth you know that the household of Stephanus, Paul writing to the Corinthians in chapter sixteen, will say, "You know that the household of Stephanus were the first fruit, first converts in Achaia." It says in the NIV, "or the first converts." It's actually the word "the first fruits" in Achaia, and that means that when Paul came to the province of Achaia, Corinth is in the province of Achaia. So, in in Greece, uh, in Ancient Greece. There, there were two provinces, at least two: Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is where Thessalonica was in, and Philippi. But then, when Paul comes down from Berea, and then uh, comes into Corinth, he comes to the province of Achaia. They were the first priests. They were the first converts of this situation. So when Paul calls the resurrected. Christ, God's first fruits, he meant that Christ is God's pledge that there will be a full harvest of believers who will be raised from the dead. Since Christ is just the first fruits, Paul is asserting by way of metaphor that the resurrection of the believing dead is absolutely certain. Verse 21. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. These two verses each begin with the word for, indicating that Paul is explaining the preceding metaphor about the first fruits and its implications. Just as death came through a man, Adam, so the resurrection is also through a man. Death is inevitable because of our sharing in the humanity and sinfulness of Adam. But believers also share in the resurrection from the dead through the second man, Christ. In his resurrection, Christ began the inevitable reversal of the process begun in Adam. The common lot of our humanity is the result of our being in Adam. That is, being born of his race and thereby involved in the sin and death that proceeded from him. So you remember Paul's classic passage in Romans 5. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, this way death came to all people because all sin. So Paul says to be sure, sin was in the world before law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone." account where there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even those even over those who did not sin by breaking commandment as did Adam who is the pattern of the one to come. So you can't explain death before the giving of the law. You can't explain it by people breaking the law. Why did people die physically? Well, they died because they're in Adam. Because of what we call original sin or Adam's sin. We inherit from Adam. We have the the, the penalty of of Adam's sin is is put put to our account. We inherit his sinful nature. Consequently, just as one trespass, that's Adam, resulted in condemnation for all people. That's the problem. We're in Adam, and as Paul says here... Through one man, death came. So, we suffer the consequences for just as through the disobedience, verse 19, of the one man, the many were made sinners. So, we suffer the consequences of this because of Adam's sin. In saying that in Christ all will be made alive, Paul means that those who are in Christ, those who have entered the new humanity, through grace by means of Christ's death and resurrection will just as certainly be made alive they will be raised from death into the shared life of the risen Christ so when he says so in Adam all die so in Christ all will be made alive we're talking about all those in Christ I'll I'll explain that a little more here Paul's point is to show that Adam's sin had a universal effect on all who came after him the same applies to Christ's resurrection. As physical death came inevitably from Adam's sin, so physical resurrection comes inevitably inevitably from Christ's resurrection. I say it should be obvious from the context that the word all is qualified respectively in Adam or in Christ. In other words, all who are in Adam die all who are in Christ will be made alive. All humanity is in Christ and all who are in Adam die. But not all humans are in Christ, however, but all who are in Christ were made alive. So Paul's drawing a parallel here between Adam and Christ. But if you just took this sort of out of context, you could get universalism from this. And other passages. What is universalism? Universalism believes that all people will be saved ultimately. And there are many Christians, people who call themselves Christians, even the Pope said this recently. You know, he's made some universalistic statements, which is contrary to Catholic doctrine. But uh, many we call talked about liberal Christians believe. Well, ultimately, everybody's going to make it. You know. You may, if you know, if you didn't get here by Christ, ultimately you'll make it. Somebody's going to make. And they would point to a verse like this: "For as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive." Let's think about that for a moment. If we go back to that Romans five again, Paul says there. Now he's talking about the fact in Romans five. He's explaining that our death. And our sinfulness ultimately stem from one person, Adam. Now, if you ask the question, "Why do people sin?" Um, why why do, how do people sin? You, you, could, you can look at it kind of like a, an arrangement here. You could say, first of all, or let's say, let's say, why do people die? Or why do people die eternally? Why are people condemned? Why are people condemned? You could say, one, it's because of Adam's sin or original sin. Adam's sin, original sin. The Bible will say that. It says that here. It says, you and I die, suffer the penalty of death, and suffer the consequences of that because of Adam's sin the Bible will say at times that we die, it connects it with our natures because we inherited this nature from Adam and it also says we die because we commit personal sins, it will actually talk about all three of them they're connected because of Adam's sin we receive a, a nature that has a bent away from God a sinful nature and because we have that we commit personal acts of sin too don't we But Paul here is trying to stress that the primary thing is Adam. But the gift, the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, is not like the trespass. Not like the trespass of Adam. Now, what he's doing here is he's making a comparison between Adam and Christ, starting at verse 12. There's Adam, there's Christ. People are either in Adam and they're in Christ. And from Adam, they receive certain benefits, or certain demerits, we might say. They're condemned and so forth. And from Adam they receive, and from Christ they receive certain benefits. But now in verse 15 he's going to say, but you know, what you get in Christ is much more than what you got in Adam. What you get in Christ is vastly superior. He says, the gift is not like the trespass of Adam, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. You can't compare salvation through Jesus Christ with one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. We're condemned because of this. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who received God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reigned in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So if you just take a verse here sort of out of context, you can get universalism. Because you can get it here. For as in Adam I'll die... So, in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, I'm, remember, I'm arguing here. When Paul says in Christ, he means all those who are in Christ will be made alive. But you could get it here. I'm just going to make my life verse, verse 18. So, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Hey, everybody's going to be justified, you know? But see, Paul won't leave it there. Notice that verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man? So in this discussion where he's just comparing Adam and Christ, This is what you get through Adam. You get condemnation. This is what you get in Christ. He makes it plain right here in verse 17. Those who get this life and justification and righteousness are those who receive God's abundant provision of grace. You've got to receive it. Which means you've got to have faith. So Paul's not teaching universalism here or here. you You can't go to verse 18 and say, well, Paul's saying everybody is going to be saved because he just denies it right here. And if if he taught universalism, then everything he said before would makes is no is nonsense, right? He's been teaching in Romans up to this point. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed—a righteousness that is by faith. It has to come through faith. We have to believe, don't we? It's not automatic. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. So this righteousness doesn't come to everybody. It only comes to all who believe. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through setting of blood to be received by faith. He did, he did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. However, to the one who does not work but trust God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. This is the blessed. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, since we have been justified, not automatically, we've been justified by means of faith. Through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So. We have to put look these verses in context, and so when we get to Romans 5, we see this parallel. We've got to remember verse 17, Paul will even insert it there in case you're thinking universalism. Just remember, you've got to receive this righteousness by faith. And so here, we understand in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. As I say, it should be obvious from the context that the word all is qualified respectively by in Adam or in Christ. In other words, all who are in Adam die. All who are in Christ will be made alive. All humanity is in Adam and all who are in Adam die. But not all humans are in Christ because they haven't exercised personal faith, have to be in Christ. Verse 23. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The fall of Adam began the process of death for the human race, but that process has been overturned through Christ's resurrection, at least for those who believe in Christ. Christ through his resurrection has triumphed over death, but believers still die physically and thus must be resurrected. God has set out an order of events, Christ first, and then believers when he comes at the rapture. Now we don't have all the events of the end times given to us here by Paul. It appears, now we, we wonder, okay, so we're gonna be at the rapture, we will we will be raptured, we'll receive our glorified bodies, we'll be with Christ, and so forth. We enter into, into the kingdom. <clears throat> But we don't know about, you know, what about Old Testament believers? When are they, you know, because uh, they're not part of the church? So when are they? I say here, many believe uh, that Daniel 12, 1 and two um, sort of indicates that they're going to be they're going to be uh, receive their glorified body um, at the end of the tribulation period. Now they, this is taken from Daniel twelve. Daniels 12 says, "At that time Michael, the great Prince who protects your people, now who's your people, Israel here, will arise. There will come a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. This is the great tribula- the tribulation period. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book of life, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awaken, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So it looks like, and we're not absolutely positive about all the events here, if you looked at some premillennialists in the past, they would say, they, they said, well, Old Testament saints will be raptured at the same time New Testament. Christians will be read that. Sometimes I can't remember what Schofield if Schofield says that or not, but most likely it looks like they'll be they'll be they'll, this will happen after the tribulation. I don't have it here, but we have the rapture and then the tribulation period, and Christ comes back. It looks like from Daniel twelve that the Old Testament saints will be glorified then, and they will enter into the kingdom at that particular time. All right. F. Yeah. Christ's resurrection is the first state in his complete triumph over evil, verses 24 through 28. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So the final event in God's timetable, just bring that chart up again there, the final event in God's timetable is the end, when after Christ has established his earthly kingdom here, um, one of my old professors, uh, Dr. Whitcomb, taught at Grace Seminary for many years. He used to say, Paul Paul was not a pre-millennialist. Paul was not a pre-millennialist. Well, millennium means thousand. So, Christ returns pre, before the thousand year kingdom. He would say, there's no evidence that Paul knew how long the kingdom would be. We don't get the we don't get the exact length of the kingdom until we get to Revelation chapter twenty. You know, we get there. We say six times we're told Christ will reign for a thousand years. But before that revelation, it doesn't. It talks about the kingdom and Christ's kingdom, but it doesn't say how long. Now, you know, I don't know whether Paul knew or not, but he would always joke and say uh, Paul was a pre kingdomist. <laughs> pre kingdomist. He believed Christ would return before the kingdom, but he didn't know that it was a thousand years. Well, maybe, maybe not. But that we, we this is a thousand-year kingdom. And then, uh, then Christ turns it over to the Father. I, uh, verse 24, the kingdom to God the Father. This handing over begins the eternal state and is preceded by the final destruction of every other dominion and authority after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now, we know that Satan is released at the end of the millennial kingdom and he will rise up and so forth. So, we could be talking talking about that probably. That's how these terms are commonly used. Dominion, authority, and power are often used uh, to spirits, satanic spirits, demonic spirits, that kind of thing. Some say it may include humans, too, Um uh, I say Paul uses this elsewhere of unseen world of Satan and his demonic forces warring against Christ and his church. Some say it may include human enemies that are also destroyed at the end of the millennium, very possibly. Um, remember in Revelation chapter 20, Satan is released. When a thousand years is over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Num- and the number they are like the sand of the sea. They are marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city of He loves. And fire came down from heaven, devoured them. The devil, who was deceived them, was thrown in the lake of fire, lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown a thousand years before. They will be tormented day and night forever. So, at the end of that millennium. Uh, uh, Satan is released and the, the way this is we understand this to be is in the kingdom so when Christ comes back and uh, we're taken up into heaven we return with him at the second advent and then all unbelievers are are uh, cast into the lake of fire uh, there, there, are, there are no unbelievers who go into the kingdom but there are people in their natural bodies who go into the kingdom so, when the kingdom starts, people who are saved during the tribulation period, there will be a number of people. Many people saved during the tribulation period. The Book of Revelation uh, talks about the number of people who will be saved during the tribulation period. And those people, uh, uh, we we come back. The kingdom starts, and they enter the kingdom. They populate the kingdom in their natural human bodies. And remember the. The Old Testament talks about some of this. So there will be a lifting of the curse, basically almost a complete lifting of the curse. Uh, people will live for a very long time because uh, uh, the curse will be lifted and so forth. If a person dies at 100, they'll thought to have you know, died very early. Remember that passage and so forth. So people will enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies. These will all be saved people enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. But they will have children. They will populate the kingdom. Many people will be born in the kingdom. And these people will have to come to faith in Christ just like you and I did. Now you might think it would be easier because Christ is there. <laughs> it's clear that there's a God. There's Christ. He's ruling and reigning. There won't be any allowance of outward Sinfulness in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, robbing banks and things like that. You know, that will be immediately put down. You know, there will be a rule, a reign. you will reign with a rod of iron and so forth. But uh, some of these people will never come to faith in Christ uh, because it takes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to bring someone to a faith in Christ. And so when Satan comes back, he will find these people and they will join him in a final rebellion. And uh, and then they will be destroyed, he will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. So I'm trying to put that together with what we know from the rest of Scripture there and Revelation 20. Um, so it may include enemies that are destroyed at the end of the tribulation, And in Paul's thinking, even death is included as verse 27. We'll make clear, death is destroyed. Because we're entering into the eternal state. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul now begins to explain, the word for, for, what he has just said in verse 24 about the handing over the kingdom and the destruction of enemies. Paul's explanation is based on the use of two passages from Psalm, Psalm 110.1, Psalm 8.6, which have a similar theme of placing his enemies, subjecting all things under his feet. So remember Psalm 1, the Lord says to my Lord. So remember that the, the two words for Lord there are different in Psalm one ten one. The first one is the name Yahweh or Jehovah so we're talking about the Father says, David says, God the Father said. I'm, I'm reading Revelation back into what David knew. But so the, the Lord, God the Father says to my Lord the Messiah, to the Messiah, "Set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." And in Acts, Peter interprets this, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said. So David wasn't talking about himself here. The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand." So uh, Paul's uh, immediate concern is verses twenty-five in verses twenty-five through twenty-eight is not to establish precise time intervals, but to show how Christ's resurrection set in motion a sequence of events of events that will culminate with the complete overthrow of all hostile powers opposed to God, including death, which entails the subjection of all things to God the Father. First, we're told that Christ must reign until He, Christ, has put all things under His enemy's feet. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is still an enemy because believers must still die. But with the resurrection of believers, even death will be conquered. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then death would still hold sway beyond the end as a power set over against God, Paul is saying. So that's got to be destroyed. And the only way you destroy death is the resurrection. Verse 27. For he has put everything under his feet... Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. With this verse in verse 28, Paul now explains how it is that God is ultimately responsible for the whole chain of events that began with Christ's resurrection. Remember, God raises the son, so forth, and concludes in the destruction of the death of death through the resurrection of believers. Paul begins with an explanation here. For when he speaks of all his enemies being put under his feet, we should think in the most comprehensive terms possible. When Psalm 8, 6 says God has put everything under his feet, that includes even death. But once the idea of comprehensive submission of everything to Christ is raised, it leads Paul to offer one clarification. There is one exception to everything under his feet. It's clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. God himself, of course, is God the Father. Verse 28. When he has done this, When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. The Son will be made subject to the Father in the sense that administratively, after he subjects all things to his power, he will then turn it all over to God the Father, the administrative head. Christ Kingship in the millennial kingdom will come to an end as history moves to the eternal kingdom. This is not to suggest that the Son is in any way inferior to the Father. All three persons of the Trinity are equal in deity and in dignity. This subordination referred to is one of function, not of essence or being. All right. I didn't want to launch into a discussion of the Trinity here, but I will if we have a question there. Number two here. The resurrection of believers. Verses 29 through 58. Uh, Additional arguments for the resurrection. Paul is almost ready to discuss the exact nature of the resurrection body. Because that's a hang-up for them. Remember that's probably why they can't really get the idea of a resurrected Christ. Uh, I mean, of a resurrected body, because they're thinking of resuscitation of a dead body. I should have looked up those, those uh walking dead thing. I forgot to look at <laughs> that thing last last week. But it's something like that. Somebody was in the walking. So it's like the dead just get out of the. You know, in those movies, those horror movies, where the dead get out of the graves and they they walk around. <laughs> I'm thinking about that Michael Jackson bit there. You heard that video. Remember that thriller video? Oh my goodness! Don't tell
1: Pastor Kim. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm
0: thinking of there. So that's why I think you know that's what they're thinking of. Paul is almost ready, <laughs> but before doing so, he has a few uh, final considerations on the doctrine of the resurrection of the body dimension. He wants to show the Corinthians how certain practices they are taking that are taking place make no sense without a doctrine of the resurrection. He then concludes with a final admonition. Verse 29. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Well, as I said last week, I don't know what this verse means, but I'm going to take a stab at it here anyway. This verse is supposed to be an argument for the resurrection of the dead, isn't it? I mean, Paul is giving an argument. Now, if there's no resurrection, why are you baptizing people for the dead? You know, so your baptism, you're baptizing for the dead. Whatever that means, it's an argument for the resurrection, right? It's supposed to be an argument for the resurrection of the dead. Taken at face value, the plain language of this verse seems to to clearly say that some Corinthians were being baptized in water in behalf of some who had already died, seeking some spiritual benefit from the practice. And this baptism would make no sense if there was no resurrection of the dead. That's what it seems to say on the surface, doesn't it? This practice is also known as vicarious baptism. The word vicarious means substitutionary. So we talk about the vicarious death of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ. Someone takes the place of another. But such an interpretation faces serious difficulties. First, there is no historical or biblical precedent for such a baptism, there's nothing in history before this, nothing in the Bible. There is nothing in the Bible concerning such a practice. There is no evidence of such a practice in the history of the Orthodox Church in the centuries immediately following the New Testament period. There are not even any parallels or precedents in pagan religion. Second, such a practice is clearly in contradiction to Paul's own theology of justification by grace through faith which requires the personal faith of the individual. Baptism in the New Testament conveys no saving grace. Now, people today practice baptismal generation. Pastor Ken alluded to that, but it's babies being baptized for their own salvation. You know, I mean, the Lutheran Church believes that when you baptize a baby, the baby is born again, regenerated. Faith is created by baptism by water. Sprinkling some water on the baby, the baby has faith. But it's, it's not not for somebody else. You know, it's not it's not vicarious. It's for the person. Now, that's wrong. But this is wrong too. The heretical Mormon Church does use this verse to justify their practice of baptizing Mormon Church members in the place of those who did not accept or were never given the opportunity to to accept Mormon doctrine. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, instituted the practice in 1840 in response to concern among his followers for their ancestors who had died without being baptized and hearing the Mormon gospel. So in Mormon doctrine, if you have not been baptized in the Mormon doctrine, in the Mormon church, you can't go to heaven, you won't have any heaven or heavenly life. So, the, so they were saying, well, what about our ancestors? You know, you got this new revelation, this new vision, you know. What about them? So he brought in this practice of baptizing for dead people. Today, these baptisms are performed for unrelated persons, selected from genealogical records in the Mormon archives. So, normally, if you're a Mormon, you baptize for people in your family, your grandfather, your grandmother, your great-grandmother. And they have these tremendous genealogical records that go back. They've traced in, so you can be baptized. But they've baptized for unrelated people. they baptized for every president of the United States. They've baptized somebody, you know. And they got in trouble just recently, you may have seen the news, because they were baptizing for Jewish people, you know, like Holocaust and people. And a lot of Jews got upset by, you know, uh, they don't, you know, we don't want your religion and so forth like that. But they, they're they baptized for just unrelated people that they they know about. So you go to the Mormon temple and you say, I want to be baptized for this person or that person, so on. And then the already these already dead individuals will, according to Mormon teaching, be given a second chance to either accept or reject the Mormon system of salvation by following the system of works righteousness. Mormonism is works right you got to do this do that so what happens is in the afterlife sometime at the time of the judgment if you've been baptized somebody baptized for you then god will come to you and say hey you want to accept this doctrine and have this planet and all people become you know then ultimately you can do it but you can reject it you can so it's up you have a second chance so this gives the person a second gen- a chance One commentator suggests there are at least 40 different interpretations of this verse. Another claims to know of 200. Things can get quite complicated because there are sometimes several ways to translate various Greek words in verse 29. For example, the preposition for in the phrase for the dead and for them can mean in the place of or for the benefit of or because of and concerning. One interpretation that seems plausible to me, though no interpretation was without difficulties, I'm just going to give you one that seems plausible. It's not without difficulties. And was the view of the early church writers argues that those who are baptized for the dead is a metaphor for the condition of believers who receive baptism. Now remember, sometimes uh, baptism is metaphorical. We've talked about 1 Corinthians 10. You were, they were baptized into Moses and the sea. It means to be identified with, you know, Christ to said his, to his disciples, Christ said to his disciples, can you be baptized with a baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Can you can you Can you partake of the experience of death and so forth I'm going to partake of? So it's a metaphor for the condition of believers who receive baptism. That is, believers, you and I, are baptized, we're baptized, because they know their bodies are as good as dead. So what when, when I'm saying, what this means is, is that uh, those who are baptized for the dead, that means I, Bill Combs, am baptized because I'm ultimately going to die. Paul says in Romans 8.10 that the body is subject to death because of sin. So I'm being baptized in recognition that I will ultimately die. Baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. That is, we are baptized with the expectation that we will one day be resurrected. Paul says in Romans 6, 3-5, Or don't you know that all those who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Paul goes on in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, baptism symbolizing our dying with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So when we, when we are baptized, we're saying, yes, we're going to die, but we believe we're going to be raised with Christ one day. The word translated all in the clause, if the dead are not raised at all, is understood to modify the dead rather than the raised, with the meaning actually or truly, as in 1 Corinthians fifteen five one. Now this gets a little tricky because of the Greek, but in our translation it says, "If the dead are not raised at all." That word, that phrase, "at all," is one word, and is seen in our translations as modifying "raised." The dead are not raised at all. But I'm saying in this interpretation, we're putting it with the word dead. And this word at all means something like truly or actually most of the time. Like in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That's the same word that's translated at all. So thus Paul is saying that if there is no resurrection, what do those hope to achieve who are baptized for their dying bodies? If they are, if these actually dead, so if the dead means if the truly dead are not raised at all. So the first word for death is we are being baptized for the dead. That is, we're, we're being baptized because one day we'll die. But we do that knowing that when we're baptized, we go down in the water, we come up to represent resurrection, knowing that we'll be raised. If these actually dead are not raised, then why are they baptized for themselves as corpses? Baptism assumes death and resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then baptism becomes a pointless rite for the Corinthians that falsely represent something that will not happen. The dead will not rise. The fact that the Corinthians submitted themselves for baptism is then an argument for the future resurrection of the dead. I don't know if you followed that. Read that over. Come. Quiz next week. come back come back next week we'll talk good about step. it a good staff, a good staff? Yeah. it's a tough one yeah. alright we'll see you next week nice. Lord willing